You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. We're going to continue talking about identity just as she has got us going this morning. I hope you've already got your uh, tray table and your seat in the upright position. We're going to be in Exodus mostly. I don't know if any of you 75 and up like myself still are on Facebook, but um, this morning it sent me my memories from 10 years ago. This is a note that my daughter wrote to my wife. This is great. Mom, your life is super easy. No one's telling you what to do and what not to do, like do your math and everything else. Do you ever get a time or a moment where you get this sense that the way it is for others is so much easier than how it is for you? You've definitely then stepped out of your identity. Because in God, you are able to do exactly what only you were made to do. And we're going to jump in this morning, mostly in Exodus, like I said. I want to just start off by noting that what was true for John the Baptist was true for Moses It's true for you and I as well. These words are from John 1.8, where the Apostle John says, speaking of John the Baptist, he himself was not the light. To the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And we read in Genesis 1.27, if you're not familiar with Scripture, you're tuning in, maybe the Bible is new to you or getting to know God and who you are and your identity is new to you. This is central in the creation story when God was making something out of nothing. On the creation of all that we know and experience, including ourselves, it says in Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This last week, I was trying to get um, the access to our property a little easier to find, and I put up some reflectors on our driveway. There they are, so you can find me now, easier than before. And I was thinking as I took the photo, reflectors don't do much in the daytime, do they? In fact, really nothing. Do you know where they do great? When it's mostly or entirely dark, and then just a little bit of light shines on them. Right? They do their best work then. We generate no light. In and of ourselves, we generate no light. We only reflect. Darkness around us doesn't change in any way that we're made as reflectors, that we are in God's likeness. And when light's on us, it's always evident. But over time, some reflectors get a little clouded, need a little shine. You know, some reflectors that I had out in front of my driveway had been there for 15 years, hadn't been touched. There was moss and things growing on them. You shine light, and it's like, you know, there's nothing there really coming back at me. And maybe this morning, that's exactly what Beth Ann has warmed us up for and what we're going to do in our lives looking at Moses is we're just going to do a little polish up on the reflectors And realize what we were made for and what being image bearers looks like as the people of God. If you were to just think about that and just say, I'm I'm made in the image of a perfect, powerful, loving God. 
It is so hard for us to remember that in our day-to-day. And as Caleb noted, when we look at war, image bearers making enemies of image bearers. We can't in that moment be thinking you're made in the image of a perfect, powerful, loving God. And so there's a global shift needed about identity and who we truly are. Each of us, our journey starts with realizing we're image bearers, that our Father's perfectly good. He's the essence of love, powerful, almighty, sovereign. And Moses' journey is particularly profound to me because he comes into a very resistant time early in his life, which is kind of strange if you don't know Moses' life journey. It's kind of truncated into three 40-year sections. And when most of us would be kind of wrapping her up, that's when the burning bush event that we're going to read about in a moment happens. And at that time, Moses is already 80 years old. And so he's resistant at first. So we have this burning bush event we're going to read from Luke chapter 3. Or sorry, Luke. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. And the scriptures in the most cases will be up on the, up on the screen. Thanks, Francis. So the burning bush is going on. Now keep in mind, Moses had been in Egypt his first 40 years. We'll read about that in a bit. And then after killing the Egyptian and ran away, which is just covered in a verse or two in the book of Exodus, there's 40 years of basic silence over what's going on in Moses' life. And it's not exciting. And he's definitely determined it's not exciting. He's an alien. He's a refugee. He's a foreigner. And here he is in the wilderness. Note, he's 40 years in the wilderness, alone. And a bush catches on fire, but it's not consumed. And he walks over to see it. Exodus 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father. Now, to some of us, that may be powerful, and to some of us, that may make no sense. But he's the God of your father. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, this is just men with names pregnant with promises as yet unfulfilled. He's the God of promises made unfulfilled at this point in Moses' experience. There's nothing exciting to this, I think, in many ways, though they had been great in what they had done or accomplished. All the promises are pregnant, but they haven't been birthed. And at this, Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. If you don't know the context, it's been 400 years since Joseph and about 70 of his family came there. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of a land into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey, going down to verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Oh, here's the commission. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So that was the commission he'd received after God had identified himself. And what's Moses' response? (laughs) If you know it in verse 11 of Exodus 3, his first response is, who am I? It's a big self-declaration of lies. Who am I that I should go? 
Who am I that I would be the one going into Pharaoh's court and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses first thought, you've got the wrong man for the mission. Now I want you to think about if you know any of the backstory of Moses, his first 40 years, not his most recent 40 years. And if you know him a little bit better, I want to ask you the question, what would Miriam say? Now, if you don't know Moses' family, he has a big sister and he has a big brother, and they become prominent in the story of Exodus and the people of Israel. Miriam's his big sister. There are people around us who know the story better than we do. They have our backstory locked in on what God's been up to. And there's people around us who really, they're never going to praise us. They're never going to see God reflected in us at this point on their journey. But what would Miriam have said? If we read Exodus chapter 1, going back a little bit in the story, verse 22, you have to realize there's been, at this point, about 350 years of enslavement. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are feeling like they're getting outnumbered. The population boom of Hebrews or Israelites who'd originally settled in Goshen as shepherds is so exponential, the Egyptians are feeling threatened. So the message from the now ruler of Egypt, who's always called Pharaoh without another name in scripture, a very different Pharaoh than the one who had given Joseph second place over the kingdom hundreds of years before, this is chapter 1, verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl live. Those were the times into which Moses was an infant. Can you imagine? There's a death order on every baby boy born in Israel, and you become pregnant as an Israelite woman. The dread moving into that pregnancy. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw she was, he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. She placed the child in it. This is Moses we're reading about. And put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So the very place babies were to be thrown in to be drowned, he's floating in a waterproof basket made by his mother. His sister, this is verse 4 of chapter 2. This is Miriam. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Can you imagine being a little girl and wondering, what's going to happen to my baby brother? He's already three months old. And his fate's about to be determined. If he gets found, he'll be thrown in out of the basket. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. So the daughter of the one who has the edict to kill the babies. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it, saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Clever girl. Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. So Moses is back in the arms of his mom and is getting the blessing of the daughter of the man who wanted to kill him. And it gets better. Take this baby, nurse him for me, I'll pay you. 
So now her baby's safe and she's going to get paid to raise her own child. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So he's adopted. She named him Moses. His name means I drew him out of the water. So now think again of the burning bush and think again of God's call to Moses. I'm going to send you back to a nation where you've got a dual citizenship, both the one that's enslaved and the enslavers. I'm going to send you to the palace of the very people who raised you. And I'm appointing you to be the deliverer of these ones who've been enslaved. They're going to get to know salvation. <laughs> and Moses says, who, me? And anybody else would go, of course you. <laughs> But he's had 40 years of life that didn't look like his real identity. And so he'd started to believe it. Just like Beth Ann said, his battles didn't reflect who he really was. So Moses had forgotten what Miriam would never forget. And we often get deceived and we create a narrative based on our actions, our flawed memories, our feelings. We need a way to put the brakes on those lies and find biblically sound strategies that equip us with identity accuracy. And that's what we're working on. See, there's generally, when you look at it simple, simply, there's a way of seeing ourselves and seeing one another as image bearers, which is full of faith and always expecting God's going to do great things because he's a great God. And then there's a way of looking at your last failure or your last triumph, and I chalk it up to what I call resume and mood. Whatever you'd say your latest activities were, good or bad, and that's what our identity gets reduced to. Even your triumphs, that's what your identity gets reduced to rather than being a reflector, an image bearer of Almighty God. So we are always potentially in this trap of looking at each other, seeing our actions, our behavior, and thinking that's all that we are. Now, think about 1 Samuel, chapter 16, when Samuel sent on a mission, the home of Jesse in Bethlehem. Jesse has eight sons, and it's time to replace Saul as king because he's no longer honoring God. And Samuel knows he's on a mission, but it's got to be secret because the real king, Saul, can't know that he's going to anoint another king. He ends up in the household of Jesse. He knows one of these sons has been declared king, but there's eight of them. Jesse only sees his sons in the flesh. He has no faith perspective on his boys. In fact, when it's time for the anointing, and they don't even know who it is, he's actually kept out of the house and not invited home, the very one who's going to be anointed. Jesse's automatic assumption is oldest gets voted for. So he pulls forth his oldest, and Samuel's like, no. So the whole household is crowding around son by son, and there's only one in the room who sees in the spirit. And everyone else sees only in the flesh. Is it this one? And they have no grid. But then someone comes in who we know writes worship songs, <laughs> dwells in the presence of God, has a heart after his maker, and is able with things like slings and stones to kill bears and lions. And he's still a teenager. And Jesse doesn't even realize he's got this capacity that he's got a son he's born who has all of this in him. God's not mistaken or confused. Samuel knows immediately, this is God's chosen king. And Samuel gives a one-verse lesson 
to Jesse and his household. The Lord doesn't look at the things man looks at. That's it. The Lord doesn't look at things that man looks at. And that's why you can't see, because you don't see in the Spirit. Now, I want you to contrast and compare two people in their hometown growing up. Different hometowns, same era. The first is Jesus. You want to look in a moment at Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus comes to his hometown, and you've got to always remember, there was only one person who was rock-solid certain that Jesus was a miracle baby, and it was Mary. Because she'd never had sex, and she was pregnant. And that gave a lot of suspicions and a lot of rumors, but Mary was like, whatever's going on, this is all God. All she was ever seeing was in the Spirit. But in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has raised up his disciples. He's moving in wisdom, and he's moving with miracles. So his life is actually living out his anointing as Messiah. But he's in his hometown. And it says in verse 54 of Matthew 13, Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. They were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They're not actually impressed that he's wise or doing miracles. They're amazed that it's him who's doing it because they know his parents and they know his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, and they go, where then did this man get all these things? They took offense at him. They go from being amazed to offended. We we don't believe that you could possibly be doing this, even though you're doing this. We don't acknowledge it. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor. I always struggle with double negatives. This prophet is getting no honor because he's at home. Now, just a few years earlier, in fact, less than a year earlier, his earthly cousin John the Baptist is conceived. Now think of life in his hometown. John the Baptist's dad is Zacharias, and he's a priest, and his mom Elizabeth is barren, and everybody knows because they've got no kids. It's obvious. When she gets pregnant, it's a miracle and everyone knows. Zacharias is also mute because he doesn't believe that this miracle is really going to take place, and God says, I ain't going to teach you a lesson. Silence. And it comes to day naming time, and everybody in the community assumes this miracle baby is going to be given the same name by his parents as dad. He's going to be Zacharias Jr. And it says in Luke chapter 1, 63, Zacharias motioned for a piece of paper, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zacharias could speak again. He began praising God. Now get this, verse 65. Wonder fell upon the whole neighborhood. The news of what had happened spread through the Judean hills. One woman's pregnant. And they didn't name him after dad. Compared to a virgin conception, this isn't that big of a deal. But it's spreading through all the hills and the neighborhood and the countryside. And look at this, verse 66. Everyone who heard about it thought long thoughts. I love that. They thought long thoughts. Hmm. And they asked, I wonder what this child will turn out to be. The hand of the Lord is surely upon him in some special way. Everybody in the region has faith 
eyes for John the Baptist. God's on him. God's doing it. And the question is, what's your hometown like? This gets to be in so many beautiful ways. Life Tree gets to be my hometown. These children who came up and quoted scripture of God being with us, this is their hometown. When we get a hometown like what Jesus was stuck with, you can do the miraculous, you can be wise, you can be anointed, and people are like, no, I don't think so. John the Baptist just has to be born, and everyone's, oh my goodness, God's doing things. Jesus wasn't recognized for being miraculous? Like, he was the only one who is the light. And they couldn't see it. Because all they could see was in the flesh. And whenever you're seeing in the flesh, there's no faith connected to it. And when you're seeing in the spirit, all you see is eyes of faith. My moment of the day was walking in this morning, getting a hug from Shirley Diggle. And as she embraced me, she said in my ear, He's answered all our prayers, Stacy. Years and years and years, and we don't get to choose the time, but God always does what he says. He's so good. Now, there's a piece to Moses' journey that actually gets rounded out, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. The final words that Stephen teaches before he's killed. Like, you know, people in prison, they get a last phone call. Stephen knows he's going to be stoned and he gets a last preach. And no one in the crowd is warm to him because they're actually the people who are going to kill him. But he opens up and he's anointed. His message is in Acts chapter 7. And he gives us insight and, and views of faith into Moses' life and his upbringing that we don't even get in the Exodus account. They're incredible. And he goes on and on about Moses, and he's getting to a a point, which is, just like himself, Stephen who's preaching, just like Moses in the past, people show up full of the Holy Spirit, anointed by God, to lead the people of God, to direct them to salvation, and they get killed for what they're doing. And he's like, you guys are no different. But in Stephen's account, in Acts chapter 7, he says some incredible things. And I want to read a few verses to you because it has everything to do with Moses' identity. I'm reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. Now, he'd been adopted, named, saved, raised in the palace, and he's just about to flee to Midian because it's all going to go down, right? But he's 40 years old, Stephen tells us. He saw one of his Israelites being mistreated by an Egyptian. So Moses went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And it says, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And the next verse is, after 40 years had passed. 
So on day one of this account, when he's 40, he kills the Egyptian, thinks it's in secret, and on day two, he gets called out by Israelites who knew what had happened, and he gets kicked in the identity. Right squarely in the identity. Because he is trying to come to their aid, he's trying to reconcile, he's trying to be a deliverer. But he doesn't know how. And Israelites who should, he thought, recognize him for who he's made to be, his true identity, the salvation child. It says the one pushes him and says, who made you ruler and judge over us? And that's it. 40 years. And he shuts down. And there's some of us here today, some listening online, and you can go right back to the moment where you were kicked in the identity. You know it. And it might not have been 40 years, but it might have been a long time. And you're nowhere close to where you could be. You're nowhere close to where God wants you to be. Today's the day. Today's the day of opportunity where you get to recognize, just as we did last week under Kim's leadership at the close of our service, what's God saying to me? How does he see me? Because he will warm our hearts to him and see again that we are reflectors, that we are image bearers. I was interviewed on a podcast a few weeks ago. Someone was trying to... um, amplify my ego and tell me I'd done great things. That was trying to be their lead-in at the intro. And I said, really, we have to back up and slow down here a bit about what I've been up to in my life. I have to tell you about my parents and my brother. Because you see, if you've met my parents and my brother, then you understand the fans that I have in my hometown. See, and if you and I have fans like that, we move forward aware very clearly of who God's called us to be, how he sees us. And we are confident as image bearers and reflectors. And some of us didn't get that hometown start. And we need someone to remind us, like Miriam would be able to do on the banks of the Nile to Moses as her baby brother and say, look at what's gone on in your life. God's got you. He's raised you up. He's made you for this moment. And even when it was right in front of Moses, he couldn't see it. But it was so irrevocable. Continuing in Acts chapter 7, looking at verse 35. Stephen continues his message and says, This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt. He did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And note that in Moses' journey, he went from this 40-year wilderness experience on his own to 
a serial number of events of 40 days without even water in the presence of God. This is the stuff of transformation. With our fathers, he received living words to pass on to us. I would say that as we're on a journey to identity as individuals, especially if you've had a rough hometown crowd, you probably have to shed more of your identity that you're carrying right now than you have to gather new content. Because you're believing as truth statements about you that you've been kicked with that are not true at all. They don't reflect Jesus. They don't reflect you. So maybe the first question is, what do I have to get rid of? What do I have to shed as God works in my life to recognize who I truly am? You know that whenever Moses came into doubt, starting with the very first encounter at the burning bush, and then all through the journey as a leader of more than a million people, whenever he came up against a situation and said, I can't do this, who am I that I could do this? God has the same MO every time. He reminds Moses who he is. Not who Moses is. God reminds Moses who God is. This is the essence of getting to identity. This is the true journey where it starts to make sense in our lives. I want to talk to you about stages of identity, and this has been so encouraging for me to think and to pray through. When you're starting out in your journey in life, doesn't matter what age, but actually a journey to identity, you start out thinking about what you do. It's the most surface way that Canadians greet each other and describe what they're up to. Even at a party when you meet and you've never met before, who are you is defined by what do you do? What keeps you busy? What are you active with? It's your resume and your mood of the day. Pure fluff. Usually massively not accurate to your identity. I was challenged in a podcast that I know a number of us listened to, the Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast this last year, and he speaks to believers and people who don't walk in a life of faith with Jesus, and it was a great affirmation. He says, the evolution in your life this year would be to create goals that are not do goals, but who goals? Who are you becoming? Now, this is the next step to identity. You move away from what do you do, because then your most recent victory is your last chance at greatness but who you're becoming is a constant journey. Now, for a person who isn't even following Jesus, they don't yet know how great he is. They don't even realize perhaps they're an image bearer. This is a huge surge and step forward who they're becoming. Guys, if you want to find a wonderful way to talk about Jesus to people, this is your in. When I go up to you and meet you and say, how are you doing? You get to talk about who you're becoming. How I'm doing is, oh, it's been a struggle this week. I've been working on patience because I know that I follow a God who's patient and I want to look like him. So it's been a bit tough at times. I lost my temper a bit with my kids, but I'm excited that I can keep on working on it. Ooh, counter that identity greeting. (laughs) You can talk about your successes, your struggles, your journey, but if you take it to who you're becoming, you are welcoming a whole different train of thinking than what you're doing. The next step, though, in our four-step journey to identity gets to be all about God. And we start out usually as new followers of Jesus, looking at those miracles and those deliverances and those exciting ways that he's exposed himself in our life, and we get talking about what God's done. But if the miracles have been few and far between, 
and you're struggling in your journey with God, then now your identity is based on his resume of what you've seen him do. And you might not be totally tuned in. So this can start to kind of go wah, wah, wah. Because really, if you think about Moses getting called at the burning bush, and God says, don't you know what I've been up to? Moses' response would be, uh, nothing for 350 years? This has been a really slow journey, and it's not getting anywhere. And that's not where God goes at all about what he's been doing. God goes to the fourth and final stage of identity journey. Do you know who I am? And when he reveals who he is, Moses gets that download on what matters most to all of us. I want to wrap up with just a few thoughts and some takeaways. We're going to skip ahead a little bit, Francis. The big step that you see between Exodus 3 and Exodus 33 is this in Moses' life. Who do you think I am or who am I? That's his starting point. That's a total identity crisis. But by the time he's at Exodus 33, his quest is, show me your glory. <laughs> and that's really, like, if you want a prayer for identity, that's it right there. That's pretty much the solution to everything in our lives. Show me your glory. Because if you get a vision of God, everything else gets eclipsed. You become in awe of who he, this amazing one who we reflect is, and everything gets to its rightful place. And so all that Moses was persistently pursuing was getting closer and spending more time in the presence of God. And it got to the point where by the time we're at Exodus 33 and 34 and following, he would come down from the mountain, didn't realize it. Guys, he was glowing. His being was emanating the glory of God. So he'd gone up into a cloud of glory, but he came out and he looked like radioactive man. And people ran as he came down the mountain. They ran away from him because they're like, ah! And so they actually had to get into a vibe where he would go in and spend time with God in the tabernacle of meeting, and he would take off what was otherwise covering him. He had like a blanket over his head. Can you imagine this? There was so much of God's glory emanating off Moses' being. He was radiating God. Face to face. He starts out hiding from God at the burning bush. He's face-to-face -face radiating his glory. I just want to read you one final scripture. This is in 2 Corinthians 3. It's from the Living Bible. This is beautiful. We as Christians have no veil over our faces. We can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him. We get to reflect it. So a few thoughts, a few takeaways to take this home. I would say amp up a little bit of what Kim led us in last week. You know where we listened to God and he spoke to us and said, this is how I see you. This one fellow who writes well on listening to God's voice, Mark Vickler, he talks about a discipline of what he calls two-way journaling, which is when you pick up your pen, don't start writing, start listening. That's two-way journaling. Just write down what God's saying to you, he sees in you. Get that identity locked in. And as you write down what God sees of you and says of you, now you've got a written record and a date stamp on it. This is what God said to me about me. And when you have a community of people who speak over one another what they see in each other that God is declaring, your identity is that hometown fan crowd. You might want to draft an identity statement for yourself. Who am I? 
What has God said about me? What have others said about me that's true? You might want to post that. When you're looking in the mirror, you can think about who you're truly reflecting, right? Try drafting an identity statement for the kid you're struggling the most with in your family. A tough coworker, ask God to show you what you see in them, Lord. You draft an identity statement for that person and you line your thoughts up to speak faith, not flesh, over that person. And then you start practicing some opening lines when you meet people about who you're becoming, who you're seeking to become like, what God's working on in you. You can be very honest. It doesn't matter how it's going. You're talking about wanting to live in a way that reflects the goodness of God, of whom you're an image bearer. Praise the Lord. You share that, drag people into that, they're going to be like, whoa, you're becoming someone. Ask others who they want to become. Help them on their journey. God's so good. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Lifetree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.